Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week we discussed the important Roman context for the rise of the Merovingians. This week, we will delve into the background of the Merovingian dynasty and their Frankish people in episode 2, Who the Hell are the Merovingians? This is a question I have been asked many times by family, friends, and anyone curious enough to ask what I do. After years of research in the period, I've gotten rather good at giving short, easy answers. To put it simply, the Merovingians were the ruling dynasty in Gaul between the fall of Rome in the west and the rise of the Carolingians, the family of Charlemagne. This, however, really doesn't do much to explain why the Merovingians are so worthy of our attention. Most people nod politely, say, interesting, and then move the conversation right along. The problem is that the period is interesting, but there isn't much that is easily accessible for those who might be curious but are unwilling to slog through hundreds of pages of historical analysis. Other than an impassioned speech from the heart, there was really nothing I could offer to get people interested. With this series, I hope to rectify this issue and, hopefully, lay out this fiendishly complicated topic into easily understood and engaging chunks. The Merovingians were Franks, one of the Germanic tribes that settled in Roman territory during the empire's decline. Who exactly were the Franks and where did they come from? Well, that is a much harder question. Like many Germanic tribes, we know little about the Franks before their contact with Rome. Further complicating this is the typical Roman haughtiness, which mostly led them to group these barbarians into loose tribal groupings for the ease of their own understanding. Historian Helmut Reimitz explains that the Franks, among other barbarian groups, were forced into static descriptions to serve as a clear other, which the civilized Romans could both fear and disdain. In reality, most historians now believe the tribal groupings the Romans described were less clear-cut and tended to be comprised of a mix of ethnic groups rather than being a single people. Further complicating this picture is the lack of a clear answer from the Franks themselves as to who they were. Heimitz again describes this perfectly. Quote, Experimentation in linking the name of the Franks to a common history and meaning started as an open-ended process and never resulted in the establishment of a single dominant conception of Frankish identity. In simple terms, they couldn't agree amongst themselves exactly who they were or where they came from. Partly this is due to the difficulties of competing interests and a poorly preserved oral tradition. On the other hand, most Franks also didn't care that much. They were in their kingdoms now, this was their home. But just because there is no agreed upon origin doesn't mean people haven't tried over the years. Three major chronicles of the Franks give three different explanations of their origins. Gregory of Tours, writing in the late 6th century, states that the Franks came from Pannonia, then marched through Germany all the way to the Lower Rhine and settled there. This would be a perfectly believable explanation if it wasn't for the fact that Pannonia had been controlled by the Romans since the reign of Augustus. Even if we give Gregory and his unnamed sources some leeway, this still would have placed the Franks right next to the Romans, and there is no real evidence to support this. The Chronicle of Fredegar, writing in the 7th century, gives a more fantastical explanation, stating that the early Franks were actually the Trojans, and escaped the sack of Troy, settled on the Danube and in Russia for a while, then up and moved across the continent to the Rhine. This is mostly repeated in the later Carolingian chronicle, the Liber Historiae Francorum, 
which repeated the Trojan origins, but also states that they settled in Pannonia for a while, then headed west to the Rhine, roughly splitting the difference between Gregory and Fredegar. Of course there are many, many problems with each of these sources, and the later ones were undoubtedly influenced by what came before. Still, there are some common threads here that give us some clues about how the Franks might have thought about themselves. First, the fact that all three stories have the tribe coming from the east is an indication that this was likely an accepted story amongst the Franks. This is not surprising. Most of the tribal groupings that pressured the later Romans were pushed out of the east and into Roman territory through a combination of population growth, thirst for Roman wealth and culture, and, later, the oncoming Hunnic migrations. So this is a perfectly reasonable assumption for the Franks. Second, however, besides the serious historian Gregory, we can see a push in the chronicles to give the Franks a mythological grounding that put them on a similar standing to their contemporaries. The Trojans were a favourite for this kind of myth-making. Of course the Romans claimed Trojan descent through Aeneas, but other groups also used the mythological city to shore up their legitimacy, including the Britons. This is nothing surprising, as societies love to claim important predecessors. Many would later claim to be the inheritors of Rome, in a similar way, including the Franks. The third and final thing these stories tell us is the most obvious. The Franks really had no idea exactly where they came from. We do know one thing though, the Franks may not have known their own history, but they were good at branding. Edward James gives us the delightful detail that Frank means something like fierce, in the Germanic tongue of the time, which, if you're picking a name for your new barbarian horde and need to scare some folk, is pretty perfect. The fierce Franks came into contact with the Romans in a big way during the 3rd century crisis that engulfed the Roman Empire. That is the first concrete thing we can say for sure. The chaos in the Roman world allowed their long-standing policy of divide and conquer among the Germanic tribes to lapse. Previously, the Romans had kept a keen eye on the tribes that lay on their Rhine and Danube frontiers. They used a mix of military power and diplomatic skill to make sure the tribes never united as Arminius had almost united them during the reign of Augustus. In addition, they had built a formidable line of defences along their borders, specifically designed to keep the tribes out. The individual tribes had always been too weak by themselves to overwhelm these defences, and Roman territory had been relatively safe for centuries. But, as the golden age of the second century started to end, cracks began to appear in this strategy. From around 166 to 180 AD, Marcus Aurelius, the great philosopher emperor, was forced to spend most of his reign fighting the confederation led by the Marcomanni across the Danube frontier. The Marcomannic Wars revealed three key truths. First, Germanic tribes posed a formidable threat to Roman legions when they were united into large confederations. Second, Rome's line of static border defences would not stand up to large determined assaults, allowing tribal armies to break through and loot the undefended interior. Third, a determined Roman response could push back and break these confederations, but it took a long time, a lot of effort, and a lack of other distractions. In the third century, other distractions would abound. Last week, I briefly mentioned how the later Roman Empire, while still inherently Roman, had some major differences to the early empire. It was in the 3rd century crisis that the transition between these two was made, with the empire emerging a more nakedly autocratic and militaristic entity. 
there had been civil wars and instability before, but the 3rd century crisis threw the whole Roman world into chaos as the unbridled power of the military was realised and the lack of firm concepts of legitimacy and succession amongst the emperors allowed for an endless series of usurpers to battle it out for supremacy for about 50 years. While Rome was focused on domestic issues, its foreign neighbours took the opportunity to consolidate and press it on all sides. Newly established Sassanid Persia pushed in from the east, tribes like the Goths began to coalesce and push south across the Danube, and the Franks first appeared in Gaul, raiding across the Rhine and later building a pirate fleet to attack shipping between Roman Britain and Gaul. After this, the Franks went through the usual cycle that the Germanic tribes of the frontier suffered in the later empire. They would periodically rise up and threaten Roman territory, usually under some charismatic king or chief who would unite enough of them to pose a threat. Sometimes this would be swiftly put down. Sometimes it would coincide with a moment of Roman weakness, and the Franks would wreak havoc for a while before either being paid off or being militarily subdued. Due to the later empire's issues with defence and manpower shortages, the subdued tribe would often be relocated somewhere where they could serve as a buffer against other tribal groupings and would provide soldiers for the Roman army. It was through this process that the Franks came to settle the mouth and lower banks of the Rhine, a power base they would hold for several centuries. While never the biggest threat to Rome, the Franks did pull off some audacious victories. During the crisis years, a group of Franks managed to penetrate through Gaul and all the way to Spain and weren't dislodged for about a decade, according to the sources. Even more impressive was their part in the Carusian Revolt, where they helped a rebelling admiral peel Britannia away for over seven years from the newly formed Tetrarchy that ruled the Roman world. It was not until Constantine the Great's father, Constantius Chlorus, defeated the Franks that their control over northern Gaul and the English Channel waned for a generation. Later, the Franks were a major player in the so-called Great Conspiracy, where they collaborated with the Picts, Hibernians, and Saxons to isolate and overrun Britannia in 367 and 368. It was again Frankish control over the English Channel and northern Gaul that allowed the barbarian groups to completely devastate Roman Britain without reinforcements arriving on the island. Slowly, however, the Franks became firmly entrenched in their lands along the Rhine and became firm Roman allies. They were employed extensively as Foderati, the name for non-Roman forces who came to dominate the Roman military in the later years of the 4th and the 5th centuries. They became so important, in fact, that several Frankish generals rose to the top of the military hierarchy in the 4th and 5th centuries. It is also worth noting at this point that sometime in this period there was a division among the Franks. The Salian Franks will come to prominence due to Clovis and his Merovingian dynasty, but the Ripuarian Franks also existed, and they were settled further upriver in the Rhineland. This division will become important in the later years of Clovis's reign, but at this point, the Salian Franks are our main focus. By the 5th century, the Salian Franks were on the path that would form the basis for Clovis's eventual inheritance. Under a leader named Clodio, they pushed into the Roman province of Belgica Secunda, conquering as far as the Somme River before being stopped by the Romans and forced to make peace. 
This is significant, as it gave the Salians their first experience of governing real Roman cities, and let them dominate the land between the southern Netherlands and northern France. These conquests weren't as dramatic as those of the Goths, sacking Rome and seizing the rich lands of southern Gaul, or the Vandals, also sacking Rome and seizing the rich provinces of Africa. It did, however, allow the Franks to have a stable power base with some significant cities to support them financially. It is no surprise that Clodio, of which little is known for sure, is often claimed as an ancestor of the Merovingians. It makes sense to claim such a thing, considering Clodio's success and his realm eventually forming the base of Clovis's conquests, but there is no real evidence of any relation. It was another leader named Childeric who was the first real Merovingian we can see in the historical record. He seems to have ruled the lands taken by Clodio, with the blessing of the Romans, and supported the Romans as their hold on Gaul was slowly slipping away. The records that Gregory of Tours apparently used are now lost, so we are left only with his somewhat confusing account. He states that Childeric fought alongside the general Egidius, who we met last week, against the Visigoths, but he also appears to have been exiled for several years, during which Egidius apparently ruled the Franks. This is most likely some confused account of the Romans meddling in Frankish politics, not surprising considering the variety of kings and chiefs we see jockeying for position later in the reign of Clovis. Most likely, Childeric had established some kind of dominance over a portion of the Salian Franks, as Clodio had before him, but was pushed out after either annoying the independently-minded tribes, or his erstwhile ally Egidius. Either way, he returned several years later, and continued campaigning with the Romans against the threats both inside and outside of Gaul. Childeric gets a fair amount of importance in the sources due to his position as the father of Clovis. In fact, he is sometimes placed alongside Aetius during the invasion of Attila the Hun. While we know the Franks were present at the Battle of the Catalaunian Plains, where Aetius's coalition defeated Attila, there is no concrete evidence that Childeric was the Frankish prince described in the sources, who had asked for Aetius's aid against their rival, who had sided with Attila. It is possible that the leader of the Franks was Childeric, who then took his troops home to quickly to secure his throne, but there is no evidence to confirm this story. Childeric is often listed as the founder of the Merovingian dynasty, which gets its name from his quasi-mythical father, Merovic. This, however, may be a bit of an exaggeration. Given his apparently shaky hold on his realm, and the survival of various Frankish rulers well into Clovis's reign, we can see that the Franks under Childeric were far from a united, powerful people. Giving Childeric too much credit undermines the work Clovis did, and the evidence certainly points to Clovis still dealing with issues amongst the independently-minded Frankish kings and chiefs. Still, Childeric is the first Merovingian we know anything about for sure, so he gets a few minutes of our attention. The most interesting thing about Childeric is probably his grave. Discovered in 1653 in Tournai in modern Belgium, the gravesite was a treasure trove, both in terms of historical data and in terms of actual treasure. Among the interesting finds were the famous Merovingian bees, which were later used by Napoleon as a symbol of French royalty, and a Frankish throwing axe and sword, showing the martial character of Frankish kings. The brooch of a senior Roman official, and a seal ring, depicting a long-haired king in Roman military dress, 
show Childeric's strong ties to Roman authority. The presence of a seal ring also implies the use of written documents, showing early evidence of Franks adopting Roman administrative methods. Interestingly, however, there is also evidence of influence from the other major power of the period, the Huns. The golden garnet jewellery found is now thought to have originated in the court of Attila in Pannonia, and shows that the Romans did not have a monopoly on influencing barbarian groups in this period. With the death of Childeric I, we arrive at the beginning of the reign of Clovis. We will, however, leave the explanation of the political situation in Gaul till next week, as we must first discuss some important issues. When discussing these historical groupings or figures, it is often tempting to lay modern ethnicities or nationalities onto them. Thinking of the Franks as some kind of proto-French helps us contextualise them in our modern minds. This is understandable, but not accurate or helpful. I had many, many conversations like this when I was trying to explain who I was writing my thesis about to my friends and family. After giving them the quick rundown of the Franks, they would ask, so, they were French then? I would say no, some of them would eventually become the French, but such a term is not accurate in the late antique period. The French simply didn't exist yet. They would nod and say, okay, so they were German then. I said no again, they were Germanic, a vague blanket term used to describe tribes from modern day Scandinavia to the Russian steppe, but that doesn't make them German. Again, Germans did not yet exist. It is natural to make such associations. Linking new information to already existing knowledge helps us understand it, but it is also problematic. If we think of the Franks as French, we associate them with our existing knowledge of the French. The Franks were not French, nor were they German, or Dutch, or any other modern ethnic grouping. They were a unique people, and we must approach them as such to properly understand their importance. Now that we have established most of the background to the rise of the Merovingians, I think it is a good place to talk about what we can expect going forward. I've described the period as wild and dramatic, but what does that really mean? Well, if there is one word to describe the years of Merovingian rule, it would be chaos, with a capital C. The whole era is sometimes called the Merovingian Anarchy, not surprising considering the tangled web of civil war, conquest, betrayal, familial politics and assassination that dominates large swaths of Merovingian rule. This is, hopefully, not too shocking when one considers the context we have explored. Gaul had been under the steady, controlling hand of the Roman state for over 500 years, ever since the conquest of Julius Caesar. The Gallo-Roman aristocracy had been effectively integrated into the Roman system, and by the end of the Western Empire, they served as prominent senators and statesmen. There had been some instability, and even independence for a short time, but Roman rule and their social and cultural influence was never really in doubt. All of a sudden, this was gone. The collapse of Roman rule in the West was a political earthquake, and the Merovingians were faced with a diverse, powerful mix of ethnic groups, religious tensions, and a complex political balancing act to perform. All of this fell on the shoulders of a family who were the descendants of a king who had inherited a small, shakily held realm at the edge of Roman Gaul. Hardly an auspicious start. While the history of the Franks outlined in this episode might sound impressive, centuries long and full of warrior chiefs and pirate kings, in reality, 
they were just one of the smaller groups ruling a poor and distant corner of the empire. After Clovis, however, they would hold the shards of the largest prize in the Roman West, Gaul, in one hand, and a sword in the other. They knew how to swing the sword, that's for certain, but they had little experience with governing their own small realm, let alone the whole of Gaul. What could possibly go wrong? As we will see, though, there is more to this period than just violence and darkness. Chaos is often the companion to radical progress. Just look at the terror in the French Revolution, or World War II and the creation of the modern world. Key social, cultural, religious, ethnic and political developments and changes occurred during the rule of the Merovingians. This series will detail it all, casting a wide net to catch both interesting stories and deeper historical developments. And there is plenty to be found. The Merovingians are so fascinating, in part, because they allow us to see what happens when an unprepared group comes to wield absolute power in the midst of a political minefield. We will soon find out. As should be clear by this point, the Merovingian period contains everything one might want from a historical narrative. Action, drama, romance, tragedy, villainy and heroism are all to be found here. The Merovingian period is kind of like the Wars of the Roses, but with fewer rules. Or like Game of Thrones, but more complicated and more violent, if less dragons. Suffice to say, it will be a wild ride. Next week we'll dive right into the complexity and meet the rival groups that stand between the Franks and their conquest of Gaul. See you then. <laughs>